This is another iRaw podcast. But there's a balancing act here because if the state, let's talk about animal rights specifically, if the state doesn't get involved enough with animals, and that's of course the situation that we're in right now in our contemporary societies, serious injustice is done to animals. But if the state gets too involved, serious injustice is done to humans as well, perhaps not as serious, but nonetheless serious, because they are prevented from doing things that they are permitted to do. Welcome back to The Animal Turn, everyone. Before I get into the content of today's episode, I just want to have a quick announcement. Perhaps you've already heard, but if not, the animal studies world suffered a great loss. In June, Dr. Siobhan O'Sullivan died after having lived for three years with ovarian cancer. She was an incredible animal studies scholar and, as many of you might know, was the former host of the Knowing Animals podcast. We talk a little bit about Siobhan at the beginning of the episode, so I won't speak too much about her here here, other than to say thank you and the animal studies world misses you. If you're interested in some of the work Siobhan does or you want to kind of remember her legacy, I encourage you to head over to the Ovarian Cancer Research Foundation and perhaps consider giving a donation. Ovarian cancer is very under-researched and, you know, even up until her last days, Siobhan was fighting for higher recognition of ovarian cancer. So I'll make sure that the link to that is in the show notes and you can head over there. Now, in terms of the conversation that we're having today, we're going to be talking about justice, or at least that was the intention, that we would primarily be speaking about justice. But in fact, we're speaking around the book that Josh Milburn recently released, which is called Food, Justice and Animals, Feeding the World Respectfully. Now, we do focus somewhat on justice, but the conversation goes in a whole host of different directions, and we spend a fair bit of time talking about cell agriculture and some of the tensions between animal rights and veganism in terms of imagining kind of a liberal future. So it's really interesting. There's a lot of concepts and ideas that I'm relatively unfamiliar with. And as you can hear in the conversation, I get quite excited and sometimes a bit flabbergasted and sometimes a bit icky. The conversation is really, really interesting and thought-provoking and sometimes uncomfortable. So I hope you enjoy. But let me tell you a little bit about Josh before we dive straight into the interview. Josh Milburn is a lecturer in political philosophy in the Division of International Relations, Politics and History at Longborough University in the United Kingdom. He's not only the author of Food, Justice and Animals, Feeding the World Respectfully, he also in 2022, published Just Fodder, The Ethics of Feeding Animals. And as mentioned, he is the host of Knowing Animals. So it's a good conversation. Josh and I actually had to stop the conversation. And then after the interview was done, we still sat and spoke, I think, for another hour afterwards. So we really do enjoy talking to one another. And I hope you enjoy listening. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the Animal Tone Podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's long, long, long overdue. I was about to say it's great to have you on the show, but actually it's way overdue. I think you should have been on the show ages ago. I very much enjoy your work, but I've probably engaged with you the most in like reading group discussions, actually. So I've heard your kind of conversations, the way you talk about things in reading groups, and I've always just found you I don't know, you're remarkable because you tend to think about the things that none of us want to think about. Do you know what I mean? Like we don't want to think about those things and you bring them up with such elegance. So I'm delighted to have you on the show today. And of course, we've spoken with each other before. You've had me on your podcast, Knowing Animals. So maybe we can start there. 
from podcaster to podcaster. Why don't you, before you even tell me about you, Josh, let's talk about your podcast. What is Knowing Animals? Well, Knowing Animals, the podcast that was founded by Siobhan O'Sullivan back in, I think, 2015. Now, as some of your listeners will know, Siobhan O'Sullivan sadly died just a couple of weeks ago. I took over the podcast when she was first diagnosed with cancer. Initially, she said she was looking for someone to just look after the podcast while she got better. But then as it became clear that she wasn't going to get better, it became a more permanent role for me looking after the podcast. So Knowing Animals is quite like the Animal Turn in many ways in that it interviews animal studies scholars with a particular focus on recent pieces of published work. So every episode, we have a new person who's coming in from a range of different disciplines. So naturally, given my own backgrounds, a lot of people from politics, philosophy, law, given the kinds of things that are going on in animal studies at the moment, we've got a lot of people from geography, from sociology, from anthropology. But I'm always intrigued to find people in new disciplines as well. So I had a recent episode with an archaeologist. I had a recent episode with someone working in architecture. Right. And these are areas where there are interesting questions about human animal relationships, but perhaps haven't really been broached by the animal studies community as it's normally conceptualized, normally understood at the moment. So every episode we feature a new academic or sometimes a returning academic talking about published work. And then we finish with some quick questions which really get to the bottom of the kinds of influences that people have and the kinds of visions that they have for human animal relationships. And as well, what they see their roles and academic to be. So we have certain recurring questions that come up in lots of conversations about, for example, the relationship between academic work and activism. Yeah, I remember. So I've, I've been lucky enough to be on the show and to have been interviewed by you. And I remember those five quick questions. You always think that you're prepared for them and then they come at you and you're like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Your answers change at the, the last minute. So Knowing Animals is a fantastic podcast, and I think it's probably one of the oldest running animal studies podcasts. So I really encourage listeners to go and check it out. And it is part of Siobhan O'Sullivan's, I think, legacy. Both of us are part of the iRaw network. And if you haven't gone to the iRaw network, you always hear the blurb at the beginning at the end of each episode. Definitely go check that out. There's loads and loads of podcasts emerging. And I think they're coming, like, it just seems like there's more and more at any given point in time. So thank you so much, Josh, for telling us a bit about knowing animals and a little bit about Siobhan as well. She was just an incredible, incredible human, I think, who really fought until the end, and not just for animals, but also for kind of the under-research and the lack of investments in ovarian cancer research, which I must be honest, I didn't know, I had never really even thought about until she was diagnosed and was really just public about it. So you recently had an episode on knowing animals as well that kind of spoke a bit to Siobhan's legacy. Yes, that's correct. So Siobhan had a tradition, I guess, of when a previous guest on Knowing Animal died, she re-released the episode where she'd interviewed them. And so I did something similar for her. I just had a short introduction where I thought a little bit about who she was and what she did and why what she did was so important. And then I reran an episode where she was interviewed by Claire McCausland. And actually that episode was really fantastic and funnily enough had been one of our most downloaded episodes of Knowing Animals. And that was where Siobhan reflected on some of her work on being an animal studies scholar. And this really speaks to the goal of Knowing Animals as well. And as you say, her activism for a range of different things, including for the discipline of animal studies and indeed underrepresented members of the academy contributing to 
animal studies, whether that's women, whether that's early career scholars, whether that's non-white scholars and so forth. And so she'd done a lot of work thinking about the nature of the animal studies community through knowing animals, but also through her published work. And so I think listening back to that episode, which was originally released, I think back towards the end of 2019, was a really kind of enlightening process for me. And I think it's the sort of episode that we're going to come back to again and again, because even when her work on that question is not so current, it's going to be so valuable to reflect on where animal studies has come from and kind of what progress has been made. And I think that was one of her goals for Knowing Animals, actually, was to create a real archive of animal studies from the early days of the discipline through the kind of development of the discipline. So I think what's quite exciting now is there's a lot of people who have encountered animal studies as, say, undergraduates and then gone through whole PhDs working on animal studies. And even just a few years ago, back when Siobhan started that, this was a very, very unusual thing. You know, people only realised that animal studies was a discipline during or after their PhDs. And so I think it's worth reflecting on what the animal studies community is or animal studies communities, perhaps we should say, are, and what role they have in this broader ecosystem of academia and activism and just the the animal world more broadly. I think that's so important because it can feel sometimes quite isolating, I think, because animal studies is almost by virtue of where it is and what it is, is quite interdisciplinary um, or interdisciplinary. So I know I was only in my in my department, I was only one. And then there were two of us that focused on animals. And this is a common kind of recurring theme uh, of, of meeting people that they feel quite isolated. But then you start to have platforms like Knowing Animals or The Animal Turn or several of the other you know podcasts that you see on iRaw. And you realize, no, it's actually a really robust, growing and stimulating and interesting kind of realm of thought. So with that in mind, maybe we can switch to to thinking a little bit about what today's episode is going to be on. So I'm hoping today to focus on justice. And we're going to kind of use your book, Food, let me make sure I get it right. It's Food, Justice and Animals, Feeding the World Respectfully. So I'm hoping we can focus on justice today, because like many words, justice is one of these words I think that we've you know, throw around a whole bunch, but that's really difficult to define. And I want to use your book as a bit of a backdrop for, for doing that. So we somewhat of a book review, somewhat of a conceptual discussion. But before we get into that, how did you come to think about political philosophy and, and focus on animals? What was, your, what was your journey to kind of making this your academic focus? I think that's a great question. What I'll say first of all is my background, my training is very much in philosophy. I'm, I'm a philosopher. I think this, by the way, just as a little aside, relates to this question about animal studies, because I think while it's fantastic we've got this interdisciplinary conversation, I do think it's really important that we also keep our feet firmly in our own disciplines when appropriate. It's important for us to speak to our own people, but also to keep our own methodologies. And I I worry that sometimes if we become too interdisciplinary, we can lose that. So I think there's the space for both sticking in our own discipline and having those broader conversations. And we need to work out which one we're doing when and why. But anyways, I'm a philosopher. And in this kind of interdisciplinary animal studies community, I'm always quite proud of being a philosopher. And the reason I say that is that philosophy has been slightly ahead of the curve when it comes to animal inclusion. So when it comes to thinking about what we can say about animals, what we should be saying about animals, how we can make the world a better place for animals. This has been a very mainstream conversation in academic philosophy since the 70s, really, in the work of Peter Singer, that I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with. 
Now, what's quite striking from my perspective is that Singer is engaging in what we would call moral philosophy, and he's normally read as a moral philosopher. We can we can kind of quiz that and question that, but this is normally how he's approached. And so he's thinking about questions about individual behavior. So should you be a vegan? How should I relate to my dog? What is the value of animals? These kinds of questions. Now, much more recently, a new strand of animal ethics has emerged, which has been called the political turn in animal ethics. And that's where political philosophy comes in. So to answer the question you were asking me, how did I get into this? When I started my PhD, I was working with moral philosophers and I thought I was going to do a very kind of what I now think of as quite old fashioned style of PhD project, thinking about the nature of value and how to incorporate animals into conversations about the nature of value. And now I think that's a worthwhile conversation to have. And it's a conversation I, I brought you upon in some of my work, but it's not necessarily what I've been focused on. And the reason there was a big shift, well, two ways of thinking about this. One is at the very start of my PhD, well, end of my master's, I was picking up some books by people like Alistair Cochrane and Sue Donaldson and Will Kimlicker, authors of Zoopolis. And I read these and I thought, wow, this is exciting. This is different, right? And these were the first kind of books, I'm talking about kind of 2012-ish. These are the first kind of books that were really focusing on animals and political philosophy. I've since realized that there were a few earlier ones, but I, I haven't encountered them. And the other thing is that I went along to a conference at the Mansept Workshops, which is an annual conference at Manchester here in the UK. And I met a lot of the people who were working on these topics. I met Rob Garner, who ended up being my PhD external examiner. I met Alistair Cochran, who I just mentioned. I met Siobhan O'Sullivan, who we were talking about just a few seconds ago. So I met a lot of the people who were kind of really pushing this discipline. And I thought, this is exciting. This is the conversation. This is the community I want to be a part of. So what on earth is this political turn in animal ethics? Well, very roughly, it's just the emergence of political philosophical reflections about animals. So rather than saying something like Singer's saying, how do we fit animals into utilitarian moral theory? We'll say in the political turn, how do we fit animals into liberal political theory? But let me just quote Cochrane, Garner, or Sullivan, three authors who've been very influential uh, in my own work and in my own development. And this is a quote from the opening pages of my book, I quote them. They say the crucial unifying and distinctive feature of these contributions um, they mean contributions to animal ethics and political philosophy. And what can properly be said to mark them out as a political turn is the way in which they imagine how political institutions, structures and processes might be transformed so as to secure justice for both human and non-human animals. Put simply, the essential feature of the political turn is this constructive focus on justice. So this concept of justice is absolutely central to political philosophy, and in particular, for the purposes of our conversation, questions about political philosophy and animals, questions about the political turn in animal ethics. That's fantastic. And I think that quote really helps us to kind of frame the conversation we're having here. Because for me, so as, as a non-philosopher, you know, I may be hearing moral philosophy or political philosophy, and you really did a great job there of kind of highlighting the differences. So the one is kind of asking should questions, whereas the other is asking, it seems to me more like how questions. If, if you were to be included in the political structure, or if you were to be included in consideration of how we structure our society, how would that be possible? Is that is that a good kind of summation for a novice? 
That's certainly part of it. And I think political philosophy has a slightly more, well, constructive focus, has a slightly more practical focus than a lot of moral philosophy. Now, that's not to say that there isn't very practical moral philosophy and very impractical political philosophy. But I think that's part of it. And that's part of what the political turn in animal ethics has brought along, a kind of healthy dose of pragmatism. But another big part of it is simply the different kinds of questions that are being asked in terms of the level, right, the level of action. Both are asking normative questions, how we should behave. But one of them is talking about us as individuals or small collectives. The other is talking about us as societies. So the political turn in animal ethics is interested in where animals fit into our societies and how we should structure our societies. So let me give a nice example of this. The political turn in animal ethics is concerned with justice as one particular value among many. And so for me, animal rights are a matter of justice. And what that means is that animal rights are strong enough, are important enough, are valuable enough, however you want to frame it, that if we are in a position where animal rights are being violated or we see someone violate animal rights, we should coerce these individuals. We should prevent these individuals from engaging in that activity. Now, that might sound slightly abstract, but what I mean to say is, if we think about it in a political society, and let's, of course, shelve worries that we might have about how the police operate in practice, but if we encounter a human being attacked by someone else, we should contact the police or we should step in, right? But in a liberal society, and I'm coming from a liberal perspective in my work, in a liberal society, there's room for disagreement about morality. So let me give an example I give in the book. You might be a teetotaler. I might think that teetotalers are just kind of prudes and are denying themselves pleasure, okay? And that's fine. In a liberal society, we should tolerate each other, you know? I should leave you to get on with drinking your water and you should leave me to get on with drinking my wine, right? As long as, obviously, I'm not becoming too boorish, as long as, you you know, as long as we're leaving each other be, that, that's great. But when it comes to matters of injustice, we shouldn't just tolerate each other's activities. We should say, no, hold on, you can't do that. And I see animal rights and human rights as both matters of justice in this sense. So I think that justice is just one moral value among many, but it's one that is absolutely central to political philosophy because, and I'm paraphrasing Robert Nozick here, a political philosopher who I quite admire, though disagree with in many important ways. Political philosophy is ultimately the question of the kinds of behaviours that we may legitimately force others to engage in. So it's actually a very high stakes branch of ethics, right? Because if I say, you know, killing animals for food is unjust, what I'm effectively saying is that if you're going to try and kill animals for food, hard men and women who are armed with weapons should come and threaten you and physically prevent you from doing that, right? And that is not something that we should say lightly. <laughs> so so in, in effect, you're saying, because the police are an extension of the state. They're an extension of the state. They're, they are literally there to police and to survey and to make sure that we're functioning and operating in the ways that the state has believed it should function, whatever that is, right? And, and however right or wrong the police do, that is what the police's, at least on paper, function is, is to make sure that we're operating in the way that the law kind of puts forward. And currently in our legal systems, in most legal systems, animals are not afforded rights. Or, or at least not any sort of positive positive rights. There are maybe some negative negative rights, but even then, kind of there are 
there are limits to policing, right, or caveats in the law. So you see this, of course, with kind of agricultural animals being excluded from some of the cruelty provisions that are put forward to, you know, protect domesticated animals. So if I understand you correctly, you're and and in your book, I think you do this really well, and and this is maybe perhaps what you share somewhat with Will Kimmick and Sue Donaldson's work, is you're looking at some sort of imagined future where you're saying, okay, right now we're in a place where animals don't have rights. But if we imagine a world in which one day they do have rights, what does that food system look like? And I think that this is a really provocative question. And when I read the sleeve to your book, I was immediately like, a bit startled because I'm I'm a vegan. I know that you're a vegan. And I think the first thing I said in an email to you was like, Josh, this sounds like a decidedly unvegan book. And you got back to me saying, it's an animal rights book, not a vegan book, which I just thought was really, it was a little bit of a subversive moment for me because I think in many ways I've, I don't think I've learned how to effectively speak about animal rights on the one hand. I know that some people have kind of fears around how to use animal rights in that lexicon. But on the other hand, I didn't really think of another way forward. So could you, before we kind of get into the thick of justice and what justice is, could you maybe explain how you kind of see this, maybe not disconnect, but this kind of tension between veganism and animal rights and what you imagine to be the the future food system? Yes, absolutely. So I'll give you a quick bit of background. I went vegan years ago and Being a philosopher, I quite naturally got very interested in the kinds of arguments that people offer against veganism or offer in defense of meat eating. And a lot of these are are seriously lacking. But some that I found very, very interesting and very, very provocative, and I spent a lot of time thinking and writing about, are those arguments that say, okay, sure, well, factory farming is out, the killing of animals is out, fishing is out, right? These kinds of lines. But what about eggs from backyard chickens? What about roadkill? What about cultivated meat? You know, these kinds of questions. And I thought these were the kind of best arguments against veganism that I had encountered. And so I started thinking about those. And I was thinking about those kind of arguments. And I was thinking about political philosophy and animals. And I was thinking about the kind of future that we might want to aim for. So as you say, this is a work of, to use some political philosopher's jargon, ideal theory. It's not necessarily saying, what should we do right now? It's saying instead, what should we be aiming for? And of course, in order to have a very clear idea of what we should be doing right now, we do need a clear idea of what we should be aiming for. So there is, there's, this isn't useless. This isn't head in the sky kind of theorizing. And the other thing to say is, of course, if we can offer a very desirable picture of what we should be aiming for, that can bring a lot of people on board, right? So you sometimes encounter people who say things like, I'm sympathetic to animal rights, but where does it stop? Where are we going, right? Or I'm sympathetic to the actions of animal rights theorists right now and the things they're calling for, but what are they going to be calling for tomorrow, right? And so I think a clear sense of where we're going and what we're aiming for and showing that what we're aiming for and where we're going is actually quite a desirable future is a positive thing. So like, like you say, my commitment is to animal rights rather than to veganism. And what that means is I want to see us live in a society in which animals are respected, in which, for example, we don't slaughter animals, in which, for example, animals are given a degree of control and freedom over their lives, in which we live with animals as political and moral and legal equals. That's the kind of starting point of the book. 
But at the same time, I recognize that the prospect of a vegan food system, a food system in which, you know, we just eat plants and nuts and roots and seeds and that kind of thing, the kind of stereotype. Vegans also eat burgers and pizza. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that's, that's it. That's part of this tension, this stereotype of the, the kind of whole food plant-based vision. And I'll be the first to defend, and I do defend in the book, burgers and pizzas that are vegan and plant-based meats and similar. But I have to say, sorry to interrupt your train of thought, is when I first went vegan, I was very much whole foods because I lived in South Korea and I've never had a better diet. And then I moved from South Korea to Canada and then there were all the burgers and pizzas and they were great and delicious. But I did put on a pound or two, I gotta say. It's been one of the really fascinating things about the rise of veganism in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same in lots of other places. I had a similar experience to you. When I first went vegan, I was, you know, there was one brand of tofu <laughs> and then I was eating a a lot of beans and a lot of stews alongside that. So it was a kind of very healthy, though I admit quite bland diet. Though when, as veganism has exploded with the new cookbooks and the, you know all the supermarkets here now have their own plant-based meat ranges and all the rest. And yeah, there's an awful lot of junk food now. There's multiple junk vegan junk food takeaways in my small town. And I mean, it's wonderful, but I agree with you that perhaps this, this stereotype of the healthy vegan is one that is dying a death now for the simple reason that there's so much present vegan junk food around. And again, I should say, I think there's a place for junk food, right? I'm not anti-junk food. I'm very far from anti-junk food. And why do I think there's a place for junk food? Well, this actually speaks to the reasons that I think we might be cautious around waving a flag fully for a vegan food system. And that speaks to, again, this liberal tradition that I'm talking about, partly, and partly some other kinds of traditions. So from a liberal perspective, one of the core tenets of liberalism is that we should let people live their lives, right? And what that means is that different people have very different visions of what it means to live a good, meaningful life. You and I might have quite similar visions. Maybe it's a kind of bookish academic vision where we have good work and where we read interesting books and talk to interesting people. And that's the sort of thing that we would consider a good, meaningful life. My next door neighbours, they have very different visions of what a good, meaningful life is. My parents have a very different vision of what a good, meaningful life is. And one of the distinctive things about liberalism is the liberal is committed to saying, well, that's fine. We can all find our own way to a good, meaningful life. What does this have to do with a vegan food system? Well, simply put, for lots and lots of people, a good, meaningful life is going to involve access to animal-based foods. Now, I can almost hear some people's eyes rolling as they listen to this, because I want to be clear that what I am not saying is, oh, some people like the taste of meat, so it's okay to kill animals. Some people think that work with animals is meaningful or life-defining, so it's okay to kill animals. No, it is not okay to violate animal rights. Again, that's a baseline. Violating animal rights is an injustice. This is a very firm, hard line, as far as I'm concerned. However, if we can find ways that people can continue to have access to those things that they find meaningful while continuing to respect animal rights, that would be a wonderful thing, okay? Could we, to use a phrase I use several times, have our cow and eat her too? And I'll explain that because I realise it might not translate very well. In the English language, we have an idiom, can we have our cake and eat it too? And what that means is, can we possess two things that seem incompatible? And I think I recently learned, by the way, that the Italians have a very nice version of this. The Italian phrase translates as, 
you can't have a barrel of wine and a drunk wife. <laughs> because if, you're, if you've got a drunk wife, the barrel of wine's gone. If you've got the barrel of wine, your wife isn't drunk, right? I thought that sounded quite sexist at first, but I said it to a group of Italians and they all found it very funny. So I think it's, uh, it, it's a similar kind of idea. Anyway, the point is that I do think we could potentially have these two incompatible things. And for the sake of those people who value access to animal-based foods, whether that's because they're foodies, because they work with animals, they work with food, because it's an important part of their relationship with their friends, their family, their colleagues, you know, whether it's important memory, important cultural practice, whatever it might be, there's a range of different ways that this might be a part of a meaningful life for many people. It would be a great thing if we could continue to allow these people to have access to that while respecting animal rights. And I should say, this is just one of the reasons that I think we might be reluctant to embrace a vegan food system and explore that in the first chapter of the book. But I think, I think it's quite an intuitive one, quite a straightforward one. And I think what we as animal ethicists or animal studies people have sometimes been quite quick to ignore, dare I say, is that actually people quite reasonably value access to animal-based foods. They are losing something, and in many cases, losing something quite significant in going vegan. And that might not be the case for you or I. I mean, I don't want to speak for, for, for us or for any listeners in particular, but I think lots of vegans think, oh, well, I didn't lose anything when I went vegan, so other people won't either. But it's not for us to say what their life, what gives their life meaning. Well, I think what fi what makes your work quite provocative, and I've got to say, like, there were several instances through reading your book where I was quite uncomfortable, and I think where I, I maybe disagreed with some of the, the premises, but I think your overall project of putting forward and taking seriously these kind of island retorts, right? You know, I think every every person who's taken this food choice has then said, you know, been faced with the question, well, what if it was just you and animals on the island? Like, what would you do? And often we roll our eyes at these, these things because it's not the world we live in right now, right? That's not what we live in now. These are not the decisions we're faced with. But then you say something like, have her cow and eat her too. And this just seems like you're trying to please everybody, right? Without necessarily having kind of a, a deep political conviction or commitment, which obviously I can hear from the way you're speaking, you do. You have a deep commitment to making sure that animals are are that they're, they're treated justly, that they're not harmed, that they are respected. And not only that they're not treated poorly, but that they have access to good, meaningful lives themselves. So with that in mind, what are some of the examples? You speak about several examples of how one might, quote unquote, have a cow and eat her too. And you spoke about cannibalism in the book, which really, like, which really, I, I don't think I've ever actually like gagged a little bit. And I had to think about why why I was gagging a bit at this idea of cannibalism and not at the idea of eating meat. And now for listeners, they're like, what the hell is Corte talking about? So we're speaking now about cell agriculture, right? And the ability to grow different types of food. And I can honestly say that when the conversation of cell agriculture came up, I never thought about growing human cells to eat human. Like it creeps me out so solidly. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. Tell me a bit about cellular agriculture and why you think it's a part of this conversation of respecting animals and potentially being able to maintain some forms of meat consumption that people associate with a good life. Yeah, thanks. Cellular agriculture is one part of this picture, right? It's one of the kinds of routes to potentially a non-vegan but animal rights respecting food system. But I do think it's, it's one of the most important parts. So let me first kind of introduce the idea of cellular agriculture. 
So a lot of listeners, I think, might be familiar with cultivated meat or in vitro meat or cell-grown meat. It, it gets a lot of different names. And this is the taking of animal cells and the growing of those cells outside of the animal's body in a bioreactor to produce meat, to produce other kinds of animal products. Okay, This is something that is technologically feasible and it's now available in a few states. But I mean, we're talking very, very kind of low level. It's something that hopefully is going to explode in, in a big way in the future. Now, actually, cultivated meat is a more complicated process, scientific process, and some of the other forms of cellular agriculture, which are very much already here. And that's a system that's now known or has recently been called precision fermentation. And what that involves is the genetic modification of, say, yeasts or bacteria, and then using these yeasts or bacteria to create kind of cell level factories to produce things, to produce proteins, for example, which once upon a time we only found in animal products. So some people might be familiar with heme, which is in the Impossible Burger, right? This is something that once upon a time we thought we only found in meat, but can now be produced outside in, in a completely plant-based way. Some people might be familiar with cultivated milk if you're based in the US, Perfect Day is a company that produces this and you can buy ice cream, you can buy cake mixes, you can buy all kinds of products that contain milk proteins that were never inside a cow or inside another animal. And there's, there's other kinds of technologies as well. People have done it with collagen, people have done it with rennet, right? This is actually quite old technology now. Rennet used to be made from a cow's stomach. Now it can be made in a completely plant-based way using this moderately novel technology, but we've been doing that for decades. So this technology is in some ways new, in some ways not new. But what these technologies together do, the reason they're called cellular agriculture, is they are producing animal products or other products at the cellular level rather than the organism level. So the idea in a sentence is, if we want some beef, some leather, some milk, why on earth would we grow a whole cow? If we can produce these things, using bioreactors, using single cells, using genetically modified yeast, okay? It's a much more efficient way, at least in principle, of producing these products. And of course, the reason I'm very excited about it is it's potentially something that we can do in a rights-respecting way. Now, I spent several chapters exploring these and addressing all the kinds of various arguments that animal advocates and animal ethicists and animal studies scholars have presented against these products to try and show that even if the current industry might be going wrong in some ways, and again, this is a kind of ideal theoretic vision, I'm not necessarily saying everything that the cultivated meat industry is doing right now is perfect, but I am saying that we could imagine a way that cultivated meat could fit into a future society in which animals' rights are respected. And that's going to involve, for example, thinking about the question of how we source cells for cellular agriculture for at least cultivated meat. Right now, the technology as it exists for say cows, say pigs, say sheep, does require living animals as quote unquote donors of cells. That's not the case with all animals because we have immortal cell lines for some kinds of animals. And so, you know, if those animals went extinct tomorrow, we could still produce meat via those immortal cell lines and cellular agriculture technology. However, for cows, say, that's not the case. And so, I explore a number of ways we might think about incorporating these quote unquote cell donors into our 
society and offering them protection. And what I do there, the particular proposal I'm interested in, is this recent development, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with, Claudia, because Queen's in Canada, where we both got a connection, uh, was, was a big centre for this. But the idea of animal labour rights, the idea of thinking about animals as workers protected with workers' rights. So we could imagine cows, pigs, etc., living on something like a farm into the future. But a farm in kind of name only, because these animals, rather than being livestock, would be colleagues of farmers and would be protected by all the rights that workers are offered in a liberal society. They would have the right to union representation, they would have the right to pay, they would have the right to retirement, and so on and so forth. And now, there's a thousand details to work out, some of which I try to work out in the book, some of which are going to have to be worked out in practice. But That offers a way, I think, to recognising how animals could be a part of our food system and provide raw materials, perhaps would be the phrase to use, for the food industry or for a food industry, and yet still be fully respected. And of course, why go to all this trouble? Again, I point to the problems, the limitations of a vegan food system. And that includes, for example, the fact that a vegan food system, as envisioned by abolitionist theorists of animal rights, would be a system in which there were no animals. And that might actually be a bad thing for the animals. You know, to paraphrase Donaldson and Kimlicker, it's a kind of strange thing to say, well, we're liberating you animals, but we're going to, you're going to be no more. (laughs) You are going to cease to be. Actually, recognising that these animals exist now, they have no home outside of our society. What we should instead be doing is trying to work out how they can fit into our society. And that might involve some quite novel ways of relating to them. Do you not worry, though, and I, I know that this is something that you've contended with, but the idea of even just starting from the premise that they are food, right? That somehow you're creating a a, a kind of... And so I'm, I'm certainly not an abolitionist in the sense that I think animals would no longer be part of our society. I, I would want a future society in which animals are part of our society, in which they're respected and they're kind of given provisions to live out their lives. And I'm very much attracted to this idea of animals as laborers, as because we're, we're laborers too, and you can be a laborer and respected, but it also comes with its own set of challenges. So it's important that we think through this and you see kind of some of these questions coming up with like police dogs or, or guide dogs and which is, it's good. I'm, I'm really glad that these conversations are happening. But is there not a kind of concern when we start from the position of animals as food, right? Like if we can use cellular agriculture to grow any sort of animal, any sort of meat, any, I know, and it also kind of, it, it really defies my, like my brain can't really quite get around cellular agriculture in many ways. And I can see how there are many routes to an unjust path with this as well, because for, for example, I know that there are now interventions to try and see if they can have cows that express human milk, right? And I don't know how it fits into this, but there's stuff going on that there's many kind of futures involved and cellular agriculture is here and it's going to be doing stuff. So where do animals fit? And I think that that's a, a valuable question that you're asking that you're engaging with. But do you have concerns that you're starting with the position of animals as food and that that undercuts maybe some of your respect for animals and the ways in which you hope that they will be given justice and respect in the future? These are all great questions. And you're absolutely right that these are central questions that I engage with with a great deal. So let me just, before I answer that question, let me say a couple of things about some of the other things you said. 
<laughs> so it's like loaded yeah josh has 10 questions take your pick sorry <laughs> no that's that's fair that's that's how i like to think <laughs> i'm very happy to engage with that so the first thing to say is that yes actually the kinds of future that i'm envisioning here are complicated they're really difficult right and actually angie pepper my my colleague here in the uk she's challenged me on this that said actually so many of the difficult questions i engage with in this work and in other work could be undercut entirely by abolitionism, right? And actually, that might be an argument in favour of abolitionism in that it allows us to avoid so many of these real complexities that don't seem to have a straightforward answer. The, ne the next thing to say about human milk is, I don't know about the cows in particular, of course, you're, you're more the cow expert than I am, but there are definitely companies that are trying to produce human milk via cellular agriculture. Now, when I first started writing about cultivated milk, I had a paper called Death-Free Dairy, The Ethics of Clean Milk. And regrettably, I used the name clean milk, which was current then, but has now kind of fallen by the wayside. So it might not come up in all the searches that people are doing on this literature. But anyways, in that paper, I predicted that people were going to start producing cultivated milk via uh, cultivated human milk. And that came true. There's now multiple companies doing that. And I think that's a wonderful thing, you know, not just for the sake of protecting cows, but also because it could really revolutionize human infant care right now. Right now, it's really expensive to handle breast milk, never mind to, to kind of acquire it. And there's a real kind of lack of it, whether this is for hospitals, whether this is for mothers who can't produce breast milk themselves for whatever reason, whether this is for children who, for whatever reason, don't have mothers, you know, and it would be a wonderful thing if we did have access to this, not just for the cows, but also for the infants, for the mothers, for the hospitals, etc. So I'm really excited about cellular agriculture beyond simply it's, it's the way it can protect animals. Now, let me answer the big question, the big question about thinking about animals as food. And I suppose there's, there's a couple of things to say about this. One of them is, this is why I spend quite a lot of time in the book talking about cannibalism, which you mentioned earlier, because that challenge is the more kind of firm version of what you've just said, right? So people will frequently say to me, right, well, if it's all right to eat animals in those circumstances, it's all right to eat humans in those circumstances as well. If it's all right to produce Sorry, just to be clear, you're saying in those circumstances, you're meaning meat that's been produced through cellular agriculture. Yeah, good. So that could be one of the circumstances. We could we could have the same conversation about, say, roadkill. Okay, okay. Um, that's not what I, that's, yeah, exactly. That's not something I do in the book. I mention roadkill, but not cannibalistic roadkill. But anyways, when we're talking about cellular agriculture, people say, well, if it's all right to produce meat from cows, meat from pigs, meat from sheep, whatever, is it also all right to produce meat from humans? And that creates a kind of uncomfortable situation because I think a lot of people's instinct is to say, well, no, of course that's not all right. So I push against that a bit and I say, well, actually, if no one's getting hurt, so be it. You know, actually, there might be a lot of people who would value access to that food. I don't know if you or I would be in that camp, but there might certainly be people. I mean, we're vegans. We're, we're quite happy without this stuff, right? But there might be lots of people who, for whatever reason, do want to access this food. And I explore a number of reasons that that might be the case. And I explore some uh, some interesting journalistic accounts of people who have had the chance to, to eat. Yeah, strange case, that one. So just for context for listeners, 
Whether this is true or not, I don't know, but it was reported that there was a particular chap who had his leg amputated and then cooked and served his leg to his friends. All completely legal, all completely ethical. It was all done consensually. And what was very interesting was this particular person reported that this was a kind of valuable experience, a bonding experience. This was something that helped him have closure on the road traffic accident that led to the injury and so on and so forth. Now, that's not that's obviously an exceptional case, but the point stands that it, it's a demonstration of how access to these kinds of foods could actually be quite valuable for some people. And again, I'm a liberal. So if no one's getting hurt, everyone involved consents, I don't really mind too much. And I think that this might be a bit grotesque, this might be a bit weird, but you know, it takes all sorts to make a world, you know. What I find really interesting about it is I remember when I first found out that there are adults drinking human milk as well, I found myself getting quite like squeamish. And even though I'm vegan, I don't have that same kind of squeamishness. I'm very much against it, but it's kind of normalized in my imagination, like that humans drink cow's milk, for example, or goat's milk, but not human milk. And then my world was kind of shattered when I was like, oh, there are humans that drink other humans' milk. And this squeamishness, I think, says something about how we've like structured our our food systems and who's worthy of being eaten or not eaten and why. And it's also probably a cultural dimension, right? There are cultures where different food practices, both with milk and eating, are, are different. But I, I wonder, so in, in thinking about this future world where there is and there are animals that have rights and that they're respected, both as workers and members of the community. Sometimes some of their cells are taken. And uh, as you say in the book, even though their cells are taken, we've reached a point technologically where there are unharmful, like uh, harmful practices. I think it's called FBS, where they use bovine serum to maybe cultivate some of these meats. That's no longer used. So technically, no one is being hurt except for someone getting a few cells taken. And it sounds really kind of innocuous. And and I follow your argument here. If we can do that with cows, why can we not do that with humans or with anything really? And, and this provokes two kinds of responses. On the one hand, you could say, well, yes, then that's the route we should go. On the other hand, you have people like me that grow the squeamishness and say, well, what does this squeamishness mean? And I think that this points for me to the fundamental idea that I think I really want to disrupt the idea that animals are something to be used. And and I sometimes have concern that in building this future vision, maybe we're reinforcing the idea of them as something to be used. And are you accounting for how time might establish or discounting how time might establish new norms? Do you know what I mean? Like you've got our current norms and you're imagining a future, but could new norms around veganism work? Or am I just completely discounting your argument here and and missing the point? Right. This is a really interesting question. Again, it speaks to a few different themes. So one thing I'd like to say is I am very interested in the chance for changing visions about what food is, what food means, precisely to try to undercut. I don't know if you can hear my dog barking in the background. She's very excited about something. Speaks to the theme of the podcast, of course. (laughs) One of the things I'm interested in doing is kind of undercutting this idea of animal use, right? Because we might be able to sever this connection between meat and animals. In the future, I suggest, there might be people who are eating meat who go, gosh, meat once came from animals. How strange. And actually, I was very pleasantly surprised to encounter Carol Adams has made a similar kind of argument. 
right? So she's talking in, this is in a book called The Future of Meat Without Animals. And she's talking about plant-based meats. And I do talk about plant-based meats a great deal in the book. And, you know, I think similar kinds of questions are raised about cultivated meat and other products. But she says that having plant-based meat and having an animal on the cover, the packaging of a plant-based meat product, her phrase is, that might bespeak a presence rather than absence. So plant-based meat offers animals the chance to live. It actually paradoxically makes animals present in a way that meat currently makes animals absent, even though one of them contains animals and the other doesn't, or one of them animals had to die from the other it doesn't. I think that's a really fascinating twist on her own argument. So I actually think that food cultures can change quite quickly and cultures around meat can change quite quickly. Let me give you a really clear example from my own life and one I use in the book. My grandparents, who were alive during the Second World War, during the war ate whale meat. Okay, it was a very common food in the UK in the 40s because it was a food that we could get in very large amounts when, of course, the UK was cut off in in a big way during the war. Now, on the other hand, whaling basically ended in the decades following the Second World War in the UK, and it it just ceased to be a part of UK food culture in any way, shape or form. Now, I, I was raised in the UK and I never actually remember being in the presence of whale meat. I've never seriously thought of it as food, right? So there's a real real kind of tension here. But then on the flip side, you know, I eat sushi quite regularly. Vegan sushi, I hasten to add. Whereas I think my grandparents' generation, my grandparents are all sadly dead now, but I think genuinely they would never have eaten sushi. And I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't know what sushi was, didn't even really recognize it as food, right? This is how quick food cultures can change. And I'm talking, of course, here about the little island of of Great Britain uh, rather than any kind of global phenomenon. But, you know, globally, ideas about what food is can change quite quickly. So I think that ideas about what meat is, what meat means, and the ways in which meat is connected to animals can change very, very quickly. And so I'm not necessarily committed to the idea that by continuing to permit meat, which is kind of what I'm saying, or even encourage the consumption of very particular kinds of meat, such as plant-based meat or cultivated meat, that I am committed to a kind of vision of a particular kind of vision of animals. Because I think these these cultures about what food mean and what food is can change quite quickly. I hear you. So that this idea that currently meat comes from animals could be completely changed in a couple of generations from now meat might be solidly divorced from animals, even though meat would have, its, of course, its legacy and its history related to animals. And of course, in your, in your book, you speak about, which you mentioned at the beginning of this episode, why this is important for some people, perhaps attached to some cultural artifacts, maybe taste, maybe different kinds of food exploration. And I think it's a difficult conversation to have. And, and I really do applaud you in, in going this way, because I think it's the type of argument where you might get like, actually, let me ask you, how has the book been received? What kind of, have you, have you had uh, any sort of angry responses or have people been kind of pleasantly surprised and engaged in what you're presenting here? I think that's a really nice way of putting it because I think when people encounter the book or they hear the book in the abstract, they get quite annoyed, right? And when I say people here, I'm mostly talking about vegans, right? So I know that I've been blocked on Twitter by a number of angry vegan protesters who aren't sympathetic to what I'm saying and aren't really interested in engaging. And, you know, that's that's tough because 
I think of them as my people, right? Again, I'm an animal rights activist in the sense of being an academic who proposes these ideas. I've done my time on street corners handing out leaflets, you know. I'm I'm an academic first and an activist second, and I'm I'm an activist because I'm an academic, because I've followed the arguments where they lead me. But my point is that I don't think of I don't think of myself as an enemy to the vegan movement, very far from it. You know, I sit on the research advisory committee of the Vegan Society, for example, I've done a lot of work with them. So yeah, there there have been some kind of hostile responses. And I think I accept that. I understand that that's going to happen. And I'd see it as my job as an academic, but especially as a philosopher, to kind of follow arguments where they go and to explore the consequences of arguments. And I think my starting point is quite reasonable. I accept that some people listening to this won't buy into animal rights. I accept that some people listening to this won't buy into liberalism, for example. But if we are starting from a kind of liberal animal rights perspective, the direction I push the argument, the direction I let the argument lead me, however you want to phrase that metaphor, I think is a reasonable one. And I think we get to somewhere that is quite reasonable. And you, you said earlier that it's a kind of future in which we can kind of have it all. Right. And that's that's kind of the hope. I'm not someone who is I'm not the kind of radical techno optimist who says, well, if we just solve this this technology problem, you know, all all problems relating to human animal relationships will be solved. The environmental crisis will be solved. World hunger will be solved. You know, there are people who are excited about food tech for that reason. That's not me. But I do think that this technology can be a part of the way to a different kind of relationship between humans and animals. And I think when you say your instinct is to get rid of all kind of use of animals or all exploitation of animals, I get that. I'm sympathetic to that. But my worry is that we're faced with a choice of kind of, or it seems to me we're faced with a choice if we're animal rights theorists, of a kind of zoopolitical future in which we continue to live with animals and an abolitionist future in which we don't. My sense is that a zoopolitical future is going to involve some uses of animals, and some of them are going to sound more innocuous than others. So let me give you a very straightforward example. If I'm living with chickens, which I think is the sort of future that the sort of thing that would be possible in a zoopolitical future, I happen to grow vegetables. That's something I do, it's a hobby of mine. If I lived with chickens, I would use their dung, their feces, their poop as fertilizer. It's very good fertilizer. Right. And I think most people would not be too troubled by that. If I live with chickens and they drop some feathers, I might make some decorations out of the feathers. They might go into my Christmas wreath, for example. You know, a lot of wreath makers use feathers. I, of course, I don't make wreaths, but if I did make wreaths, I wouldn't use feathers because I'm a vegan. But then I say, and if the chickens happen to lay some eggs, <laughs> and vegans start saying, no, 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 that's not okay, that's not okay. And my sense is that if we're opening the door to some kinds of uses, it's very hard to shut the door without, well, let me put it like this. It's one thing to say we can't use animals in ways that are harmful. I absolutely agree with that. So if I live with some chickens, I couldn't then slaughter those chickens and eat meat, right? Obviously, because I believe in animal rights. But if we can continue to use animals in some ways that are non-harmful, it's quite hard to see why we couldn't use them in other ways that are non-harmful, such as harvesting some eggs. Now, of course, I accept that there are difficult questions here, and I explore these at length in the book. You know, might there be reasons to think that eating eggs is exploitative or is involves objectification? Might there be reasons to think that 
we shouldn't be allowing chickens to lay eggs, we should be giving them contraceptives, etc. These, these are all important questions that I address at some length. And so I don't think that these are easy questions. Again, the abolitionist answer is in many ways the easy one. But I do think we need to grapple with them. And I think once we are allowing that some future other than the abolitionist future is possible, we need to think seriously about the ways to incorporate animals into our lives, into our societies, and the ways that we might use them. Because as you quite rightly say, we use each other all the time, right? I'm using you now as someone to help publicise my book and my ad. <laughs> no, no, I'm using you in my exactly. podcast. <laughs> You're using me as a guest on your podcast. You know, we are both using the people who have developed the software that we're using. They're using us because, you know... Of, of course, though, we are speaking here about very different systems, right? Like histories of oppression, histories of of use that have been really devastating to animals, to their bodies, to the ways in which they can relate to one another. So which which I know that 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 you know. And of course there are just many, many different ways to use. So I know I've of course heard the chicken backyard chicken argument many times and people say, well what if I just use back and then I say, well when the chicken stops producing eggs, what do you do with the chicken? What 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 happens to your chicken then? And if the person's like, well then I'm like, well, you're not getting the, the chicken to rescue them or actually to, you know, their life is in no way part of your intention for actually getting the chicken. And I think that that's really a, an important argument here is what are your goals in doing a particular practice is sometimes tricky. And also what are the effects of having a chicken in that space? Are they living a good life? And that's also very variable. That's all very, very, very difficult. I agree with you entirely. And I think with the kind of political, philosophical and ideal theory lens that I'm taking in this book, the further question is what kinds of societal protection should we be offering to the chicken, right? What kinds of rights do they have? What kinds of groups are they a member of? So for example, if I was in this future I'm imagining, if I was living with a chicken, the chicken would have the protection of animal rights, but the chicken would also presumably have something like citizenship rights, again, echoing Donaldson and Kimlicker here. But then if we're treating this backyard chicken as a source of eggs, maybe they should also have something like workers' rights. And in the final, well, the final chapter of the book that's focused on a particular possible food element, because there's, there's another chapter which looks at the, the politics and sits back in political philosophy again, I, I envision something like a chicken farm, something like an egg farm, where those chickens are protected by workers' rights, as well as citizenship rights, as well as the basic rights that they're entitled to as sentient beings. Now, this is the more speculative chapter of the book, right? But again, if it's following the argument where it leads. If we can produce cellular agriculture via this kind of farming system, could we also produce eggs? Now, we couldn't produce chicken carcasses like this, right? Because this has to be slaughter-free farming. Of course it does. Again, the foundational starting assumption that I, I'm working with is that animals have rights. There are certain things that are way beyond acceptable that we that we currently do to them and that we shouldn't, and that in this future society, we wouldn't. But my thought is, again, to, to echo this thought, my thought is that there may be ways that we can interact with these animals in ways that are consistent with their rights and that allow us to utilise them in similar kinds of ways to the way that we all utilise each other right now. And if, if we are not taking the abolitionist line, that seems to be the only way we can go. And yeah, we, we can, of course, argue, and I, of course, welcome disagreement and reasoned disagreement. And, you know, anyone who's listened to this and thinks I'm wrong, you are very warmly invited to write down why I'm wrong and to publish that. And I, I will, of course, read that and engage with that. But I think that there are, there are there's space for interaction with animals, and that interaction might involve us 
benefiting from the presence of these animals in many, many ways, not just in terms of companionship, not just in terms of manure for growing vegetables, but also potentially as sources of food. No, I mean, as, as I said, I think you, you really, you, you pulled off an elegant argument in this book. And I think it's, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that you've received some hostile. And I think that this is also, it's tricky. Um, I remember reading a I remember reading a paper by Plumwood on ontological veganism, and it still it still grates me. And I can't quite say why it grates me, because in many ways I thought of all the of all the things to you know put your crosshairs on. Why would you choose veganism at this point in time? But this book is not an attack on veganism. I would never ever view it as an attack on. I, I view it very much as saying, how do if we're going to argue, if we're going to if we're going to put forward an idea of a future in which animals are treated well. And certainly veganism is part of that future. We do need to take seriously the arguments that are pitted against veganism because you can't just wish them away because these are still arguments that are very much in the minority of, of scholarship, of discussion, of political thought. So I really do commend you on, on an excellent piece of, of work that's got me thinking in all sorts of directions. Now, I realized that we have actually barely spoken about justice explicitly, which was the intention, and we're almost an hour in. But I think that justice has been skirting a lot of our conversation, rightfully so. In the beginning, you brought up that quote where you kind of spoke about structures and systems. And I think even just you know, hearing you speak, we've we've spoken about things like respect, respect for animals, workers' rights, you know, citizenship rights. These are all structures that don't yet exist, but that would create a fundamentally different world for animals and humans in the ways in which they react or relate. So maybe you could just bring us full circle back to justice. Why everything we've spoken about here, why do you think it's why do you think justice is the thing that ties it all together, the thread that brings these different arguments together? My aim in this book is to think about these protections of animals and these possible systems of food production through the lens of justice. So my question is not so much, should we eat these things? Is it morally good to eat these things? It's, should the state allow these things? Should the state prevent these things? So fundamentally, it is a question of justice. I think that there are, for example, well, I think that there are a number of moral reasons against eating these things. And I think the clearest example is, I am not going to walk up to a Jain or a Rastafari or whoever it might be, who believes that their religious identity is tied up with a moral commitment not to eat any animal products and say, you should eat these things. That's the last thing I'm going to do. There is absolutely room for veganism in this world that I'm envisaging. Perhaps many, many, many vegans, many, many more vegans than there are right now. But I don't think, because my focus is on justice, I don't think that these things are unjust. I think that we could build these structures, build these kinds of relationships with animals, build these food production methods in a way that does not violate animal rights. And I think justice is actually a really, it's a balancing act, right? Especially for someone like a liberal, someone like me who is a liberal. And that's because liberalism is nervous about state power. There are other approaches to politics on the left and on the right that are quite happy to support large states that control our lives in various ways. The liberal says, no, leave people to live their own lives. Don't tell people how to live their lives. Just ensure that well, this isn't normally how they put it, but just ensure that justice is realised. But there's a balancing act here, because if the state 
let's talk about animal rights specifically. If the state doesn't get involved enough with animals, and that's of course the situation that we're in right now in our contemporary societies, serious injustice is done to animals. But if the state gets too involved, serious injustice is done to humans as well, perhaps not as serious, but nonetheless serious, because they are prevented from doing things that they are permitted to do. <laughs> so again, if we're talking about banning something, let's use a non-animal example. If we're talking about banning the consumption of cannabis, what we're saying is that people who smoke cannabis are at threat, are liable to have their doors kicked down and armed men and women to come into their house and take their things away from them, perhaps lock them up, right? That is not something we should say lightly. And so I don't think that we should lightly say, oh, let's ban that method of food production. Let's have the state prevent us doing that. Instead, we should say, right, does that involve the violation of human rights? Does that involve the violation of animal rights? Is there some other reason to support banning it? Banning should be a kind of last resort. Our assumption should not be that we ban something, even if, to, to paraphrase something you said, and something I'm sympathetic to, it feels icky. <laughs> even if something gives us a feeling in our stomach that we really don't like it, right? I mean, that kind of emotion has a long history and a long history that's tied up with hideous, awful state oppression of people, of people from sexual minorities, for example, people from religious minorities. So what does all this mean? Well, it means that if, if cellular agriculture, or another example we haven't talked about, but I do talk about a lot in the book, uh, the farming of animals who are non-sentient, right? Animals who can't think, can't feel, you know, we can argue about who those animals are, but oysters might be an example. And, you know, again, not, my, not uh, my place to make that claim as a philosopher, precisely which those animals are, but whatever those animals are, if the state comes in and says, no, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't farm these, these animals, and they're non-sentient, that seems to be an injustice against the humans. The humans have been prevented from doing something that they find valuable and something that doesn't violate any rights. That seems to be state overreach. That seems to be an injustice. There's a real kind of delicate balancing act here. And I think that we can be too quick to wield the language of justice. And I want to stress again that even though I say animal rights are a matter of justice, I recognise that, that is, that's a heck of a claim, right? That's a big claim that comes with some very scary sounding consequences. And I don't take it lightly. And I think part of not taking that lightly is recognising that there might be ways that we can interact with animals that do respect their rights. And I do think that this is a matter of justice and, and perhaps something that's been unsaid here is, you know, you've spoken a fair bit here about policing and kind of the policing of what is banned and what is not banned. But in this future that you're talking about, the thing that is also being policed is the non-use of animals, the non-exploitation of animals. You know, you're not allowed to to slaughter a cow. You're not allowed to slaughter a chicken, right? This is an explicit starting point, And that is something that is banned and policed. Uh, and you're kind of talking about these fringe cases of what would make this future world more palatable, what would make this future world more palatable to most people. And I think it's a tricky conversation. And I'm really glad to have read, read your, your book and engaged with your work. But we're reaching the, the end of the show now. And I know that you've got a, a quote ready that speaks to some of these themes. Do you want to, do you want to, Tell us what it is. Yes, and actually it speaks to exactly what we were just talking about. <laughs> oh, lucky. So this is a quote from a book called Putting Humans First, Why We Are Nature's Favourite by the libertarian philosopher Tiber Macken. Now, as that title suggests, 
Macken is not exactly friendly to animal rights. And in fact, he's, he's a real critic of animal rights. And I should say, I think this is in many ways quite a bad book. <laughs> I think he makes a lot of very silly arguments. I think he really misunderstands what's going on in animal rights and animal ethics. But nonetheless, there's a particular line in this book which has stuck with me and I think really speaks to what we were just talking about. And it's a it's a line I come back to again and again and again in Food Justice and Animals. And that is, quoting Macken now, those who genuinely care for animals should consider the possibility that to the extent arguments for animal rights succeed, they may only confer additional power on governments and bureaucrats to run our lives for us. And I think that's such a clever line. So as in, as in if animal rights comes to fruition, people will be policed more? Exactly. So animals have rights and that justifies a great big powerful state to tell us how to live our lives. And that's something that he as a libertarian and me as a liberal are worried about. Now he takes this as a kind of criticism of animal rights. If you are sympathetic to animal rights, you should reject animal rights because actually that's just going to lead to really big state power. But I think even if we accept animal rights, we should keep this in mind. And we should keep this in mind because we don't want to be told how to live our lives. Of course, there are certain things that many of us do today that should be restricted. But at the same time, we need to be careful not to give too much power to the state, too much leeway to the state to tell us how to live our lives. States are imperfect, as we quite realistically know, but also they, are, they have a particular role, and that's a particular role to protect the vulnerable, but not to go further than that. But then how are animals in this kind of future, in this nondescript future time, presumably they also don't want state intervention into their lives. They, they also want freedom to make their own choices and to move. And this might raise a whole host of kind of inconveniences, right? Like I'm always thinking about the city and especially with the use of Zoopolis throughout your book that's been used in kind of geography and in philosophy in two different ways, which is always interesting. But there'll be a whole host of, quote unquote, inconveniences once animals are afforded these rights, right? They'll be able to move through cities. They will disrupt perhaps traffic flows. You know, you start to think about the freedoms they're afforded and the amount of state intervention in their lives, if we're framing them as kind of workers, et cetera, et cetera. What, what capacity do they have to leave that work in this kind of future farm? What capacity do they have to choose to participate in this work or choose to? because it's one thing to talk about the animals, the humans kind of claim and the restrictions on humans in future, but what about the restrictions on animals? Absolutely. I think this is exactly the right question to ask. And part of the reason it's exactly the right question to ask is that I don't have answers to this yet. I think that one of the important steps that we can institute and we should institute, and that I talk about several times over the book, is ensuring that animals have the right kinds of democratic representation. Right. So part of bringing animals into politics is I use this quite metaphorically. Others use it more literally, but giving them the vote, <laughs> ensuring that their voice is heard in political decision making, whether that's at the kind of the highest level, whether that's in, to use the British example, the House of Commons, to ensure that laws are passed that take animals into account. And, you know, we, we've had the very first steps towards this in the UK, which is fantastic with the, the so-called Sentience Act. And now lawmakers, policymakers are obliged to consider the impact of laws on animals as sentient beings. Now, that, that of course, is not representation for animals, but it's at least placing animals on the agenda quite explicitly, which is, which is so, so exciting. And, you know, this is, 
I'd like to hope the first steps towards something greater, something something more towards the direction that you and I would support, even if our particular visions of the future might, might differ a little bit. But when it comes to workers, we can also think about union representation and we can also think about workplace representation and forms of workplace democracy. Ensuring that animals are represented as the kinds of beings they are in the kinds of positions they are in within society. We can also talk about this at an international level, right? So maybe there are some animals that aren't really part of our society in the same way, but maybe they have some standing on the international stage. Maybe the UN or an equivalent body should have representatives speaking on behalf of wild animals or free living animals or however we want to frame that. And these, these create some really difficult questions, right? How do we communicate with these animals? In what way could this kind of exercise of power possibly be legitimate? And so on. And again, I think it comes back to this thought that if we're serious about animal rights, we face a kind of fork in the path. We either go the abolitionist route and just completely have a hands-off relationship, or we have to engage with these kinds of questions and the real messiness that exists there. Some of the kinds of problems have to be worked out in practice, right? And this is one of the nice things about, or the troubling things about political philosophy, is that unlike Plato, who of course is one of the great political philosophers, I'm not giving a kind of step-by-step -step guide of this is exactly how the society will look. You know, ultimately this is a liberal democratic vision. And that means that there's room for individuals to express their preferences about how society should be ordered. And there's room for individuals to express their preferences and their beliefs about what it means to live a meaningful life, what it means to live a good life. And that means that what things are going to look like in practice, we, we have to wait to see, right? We have to allow those voices, those lifestyles, those approaches to, to work themselves out. Yeah, and I think, you know, coming back to what we were speaking about in the beginning, kind of being true to your discipline, but also interdisciplinary, like having kind of those dual purposes is I think that it is really important to talk across these disciplines, but also to kind of develop the, the work that philosophers do in terms of thinking through these thorny quagmires. Is that how you say it? I always say words incorrectly. You know, it's, 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 it's hard work thinking. <laughs> I know that's not, there's a lot of hard work out there, but then you've got kind of geographers figuring out the, the spatial dimensions of, of cities, or you've got architects who you spoke about, like thinking about how can cities, these kind of create incremental changes, but we do, as you said in the beginning, need to think somewhat about what this future looks like and, and in pragmatic ways. And even if it's not always 100% what we would like, we have to think seriously about the objections that are thrown our way. And otherwise, it's not, they don't disappear if we don't look at them. So thank you so much for spending some time with me here today. Before I let you go, Josh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? And if folks are interested in learning more about your work, how they could get in touch with you? Yeah, thanks. Well, thanks so much for having me and thanks so much for your kind words. In terms of what I'm working on now, I've got a couple of projects on the go. So one of them, I mentioned earlier, the philosopher Robert Nozick. I'm working on a book about where animals fit into Nozick's thought, because although he's perhaps not very popular among a lot of contemporary political philosophers because he was a right libertarian, because he defended these political visions that just aren't very popular right now, at least among, at least among philosophers. I mean, there are other disciplines where they might be a bit more popular. He's he's kind of overlooked to a certain extent, even though in terms of the influence he had on the discipline, it was enormous. And he was a vegetarian. He was a vegetarian who thought very seriously about animals. And his book, Anarchy State Utopia, which was published in 1974, incidentally, a year before Peter Singer's Animal Liberation, 
it included about 16, 17 pages, a huge, great big long discussion of animals and vegetarianism, saying we should all be vegetarians. So I'm working on a book trying to work out where animals fit into his broader thought, including in his politics, but also in his ethics and other parts of his thought. That's that's a bit of a passion project for me. I'm, I'm intrigued by Nozick's work and his arguments and his style and the rest. But and another area that I'm looking into, which might be of more interest to perhaps an interdisciplinary audience, is I'm trying to start a project on animals and warfare. And the particular interest I have is that there is a very well-developed tradition of the ethics of warfare, which is taken seriously by philosophers, by lawyers, by theologians, and indeed by real-world militaries and real-world political leaders. But this tradition is resolutely anthropocentric. Okay, there seems to be very little room for making sense of what we owe to animals in this. And that leads to some very interesting tensions. I mean, when Kabul fell a few years ago in the UK, it was top level political discussions, front page broadsheet news, evacuation of animals from Kabul. And what I thought was really interesting about this was if someone was to ring, a journalist was to ring leading just war theories and say, well, what does just war theory say about the animals in this case, their answer, if they were being honest, might have to be, well, very little. <laughs> and that seems strange to me. So I'm interested in working out what the ethics of war can do in terms of helping animals. So this has moved from the kind of ideal theory we're talking about today to obviously very much non-ideal theory, because in an ideal world, there wouldn't be war. But it's also about trying to develop a new strand of just war theory that says, well, here's what just war theory looks like if animals are taken seriously. So that's going to be a kind of multi-year project. And I've had a couple of papers, well, I've had one paper published, another paper just accepted, which will be coming out in a few weeks, about animals and just war theory. And both of those papers have been with my colleague, Sarah Van Goosen from the University of York. And I hope to produce a lot more on animals and war. And indeed, I'm co-hosting a conference in September on that topic. Well, broadly on the topic of animals and violence, but warfare certainly being a big part of that. So I'd really love to be working on this for the next few years, but we'll see what happens in terms of, you know, can I get some funding? <laughs> can I get some collaborators? Where do I end up with this? But this is something I'm quite excited about at the moment. I find this really fascinating because it's, it's certainly a continuation of your focus on justice, right? And and it's something that hasn't even come up in this episode yet, yet is the idea of just food, right? Or food justice, sorry. Because I was even just in the preparation of today looking up food justice and I had a you know, an experience of being at a, with a group of friends and we were talking about COVID. It was for like a conference thing. We were all talking about COVID and we were talking about food and COVID-19 in Canada. And I don't do work on food, but I felt it imperative that I was part of this panel discussion because no one was talking about animals, even though we were talking about COVID-19. And for me, it was quite clear. This was early stages of COVID-19. People were wondering whether it came from wild animals, pathogen flows. Um, and of course, many animals were being killed in the early stages of and yet I found that we were having these conversations about like a just food system or food justice without including animals at all. And it sounds to me that it's similar in all of these realms where we start to speak about justice, whether it's just war theory, whether it's just cities, whether it's just food systems, that animals are often neglected in these conversations. So I find it really fascinating that you're continuing this thread and I'm excited to see where you go. Food justice is such a fascinating topic, and we could have a whole other episode about this. But let me just offer, well, first a very brief anecdote, and then, then just a note about food justice. When I first started this project, this book project, the title was going to be Food Justice and Animals, right? 
the final title was food, comma, justice, comma, and animals. So it's, are we talking about food, one concept, justice, one concept, animals, another concept? Or are we talking about food, justice, one concept, and animals, another concept, right? Comma makes all the difference. Now, as it happens, food justice does end up being a major, major theme in the book, okay? And it's it's something that recurs throughout the book. The reason I adjusted the focus a little bit is because the relationship between animal rights and food justice is, is a complex one. And a lot of food justice activists and a lot of scholars working on food justice are actually quite hostile towards veganism and towards animal rights issues. And I would really like, this is something I've, I've started to do, but I haven't, I haven't developed to the to level I'd like to, but I'd really like to offer a rigorous account of how animals fit into food justice and a kind of animal inclusive notion of food justice. Because right now, food justice seems to be very anthropocentric, sometimes with a nod towards animal welfare, but usually nod towards concern for animals at all. And I think that's regrettable. But I don't want to wade in, if you know what I mean. I don't want to be someone who comes barging in and says, all you people who've made a career working on food justice, you're all wrong. And here's how to actually do it. You know, this has got to be done sensitively because the values of food justice, as traditionally understood, are real ones. The fact that many people go hungry, the fact that many people lose control over foodways, the fact that many people's traditional sources of food and understandings of food are severed by particular hegemonic visions of what food is or, or how to produce food. These are all real problems, and I don't want to underestimate them. But nonetheless, food justice does, because these are real problems, food justice does play a big part in the, in the argument of this book. Yeah, certainly. You know, kind of sitting at the back of my, because you start to think about food justice, you're also thinking about who has access to what food, right? And you think about things like food deserts, you think about, you know, it's a particularly kind of classed and racialized area of study for good reason, because certain people have had access to certain types of food. And something, and last question, Josh, I think I could actually talk to you for forever and ever, but it was something that was brewing in the back of my book is it seemed you had like a vision of the good that was very much a British vision of the good, right? Like you think about the commons and the pastures and, and then I think about some of these food justice questions and I wonder if it's maybe a, a space for kind of future consideration, maybe you've already thought deeply about this. But the idea of the good for some is obviously very different to the good for others. And there are the legacies of these food systems that have completely changed the his history of food, right? So you look at North America, the introduction of domestic animals to that continent completely changed the ecology of the continent and has altered the food systems there dramatically. So I just, I think it's really interesting looking at the past and how things like colonialism shattered food systems and really created this hegemonic system. And yeah, maybe that's, that's also part of this just food conversation and how animals are employed in this particular subjects. I don't know where I'm getting up with this. I'm just kind of steamrolling now. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, this backwards looking element is is so important. And I think actually it's got to be central to a kind of zoo political vision as well. It's a recognition that we've brought animals into our society for better or worse. I mean, mostly for worse, let's be honest. However, that doesn't mean that we can then just sever our relationship with them. It means quite the opposite. It means that we need to welcome them to our societies. So I do talk about the, the colonial aspect, that you're, the very specific colonial aspect you're talking about there in conversation with Manisha Decker's work in, in the book around dairy and around the, yeah, and I, I know that's a literature you know very, very well. And so I do try to take those seriously. I think you are right that the, the kind of visions of the good I'm engaging with here are quite 
British in character. And I think about pastoralism, for example. And when I talk about relationships to nature, I'm, I'm engaging with the particular kinds of visions of nature that I have from my own upbringing. And there's nothing wrong with, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I'm just, it was something that was kind of, obviously I come from South Africa and those visions were different for me, right? Of course. And I think one of the important things about liberalism is actually recognising, certainly liberalism as I'm framing it in this book, is recognising that liberalism is not about imposing a conception of the good. It's about recognising the diversity of conceptions of the good. So what I'm trying to do when I talk about different visions of the good is, is kind of give a snapshot of the range of different ways that people might relate to to the good life, <laughs> whether that is relations to nature, relations to food, relations to other humans, relations to spirituality. And Again, there's, there's, a, there's a reluctance from me, a quite kind of conscious reluctance to start steamrolling in and making declarations about different people's understanding of the good. And that's perhaps why I, I go towards notions of the good that are, are more culturally familiar to me. And of course, I do touch upon others. I do touch upon others. But it would be quite difficult for me to start saying, well, here's typical Yoruba conceptions of the good. Here's typical Peruvian conceptions of the good. No, and it would be essentialist, I think. Uh, you know, you, you, you would not be doing justice to any of, of those kinds of understandings. I mean, I can't do justice to my own understanding of what the good is, right, let alone anyone else's. So, yeah, I mean, that's perhaps a bit of an unfair remark. I just, I was just kind of thinking about how, you know, food systems have, have dramatically, as you said during the interview, have dramatically changed and altered and how we account for kind of historical injustices in the future of, of food, uh, food animals and justice. But Josh, let me not keep you any longer. Thank you so much for joining me on the show and for engaging with my slightly loopy questions and for being so gracious with them all. And I really look forward to seeing some of the work that you're planning to do with animals and warfare. Well, thanks so much. It's been really fantastic, really nice to talk to you. And I look forward to hearing what people think. Thank you so much to Josh Milburn for being a fantastic guest, to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple for sponsoring this episode, to Jeremy John for the logo and Gordon Clark for the bed music. Thank you also goes to Christian Mentz for editing this episode. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hertenfelder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. Ah!